We are in Zechariah chapter 9. Well, actually chapter 10, but I want to begin in verses 16 and 17 and show you how they end and maybe tie in uh, to chapter 10. One of the things I was thinking about uh, with all the things that are going on is the importance of staying with the Word of God, staying with the truth. Even though as we look through these things tonight, uh, you know, there's going to be things that are pertinent, that are interesting, that we can make application for. But even if that's not the case, we need to continue to teach, look at the Word of God, because there's so many things around uh, getting our attention. A lot of it you know, is false. It has to be, because there's both sides, and there's different sides, and we're getting part of the story, a false story, a twisted story. Uh, you don't know what's up or what's down, you really, unless you're going to investigate everything yourself. Uh, which, of course, you can't do. Uh, we're just being bombarded. But we do have the Word of God, and if we continue to look at the Word of God, that's going to give us truth uh, to at least examine you know, our, our lives by and let history play out, and we wait with God and stay with God. And so here we are in Zechariah chapter 9. I'm going to read out of the NIV, uh, beginning in chapter 9, verse 16 through the end of the chapter. I hope to get through chapter 10 tonight. Uh, A lot of the themes will be familiar. Chapter 9, verse 16. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. So chapter 9, verse 16 ends the military conquest they're back in the land chapter 9 verse 17 switches to the agricultural concept which moves into chapter 10 they're talking about agriculture grain wine the young men the young women kind of like they're established in the land and prospering and that leads into the chapter 10 verse 1 ask the lord for rain in the springtime it is the lord who makes the storm clouds He gives showers of rain to men and plants of the field to everyone. Verse 2, the idols speak deceit. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep oppressed for lack of a shepherd. My anger burns against the shepherds. And I will punish the leaders. For the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the house of Judah, and make them like a proud horse in battle. From Judah will come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler. Together they will be like mighty men trampling the muddy streets in battle. Because the Lord is with them, they will fight and overthrow the horsemen. I will strengthen the house of Judah and save the house of Joseph. I will restore them because i have compassion on them they will be as though i had not rejected them for i am the lord their god and i will answer them the ephraimites will become like mighty men and their hearts will be glad as with wine their children will see it and be joyful their hearts will rejoice in the lord i will signal for them and gather them in surely i will redeem them they will be as numerous as before Though I scatter them among the peoples, yet in distant lands they will remember me. They and their children will survive, and they will return. I will bring them back from Egypt and gather them from Assyria. I will bring them to Gilead and Lebanon, and there will not be room enough for them. They will pass through the sea of trouble. The surging sea will be subdued, and all the depths of the Nile will dry up. A serious pride will be brought down, and Egypt's scepter will pass away. I will strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. And then chapter 11 begins, I I assume, another subject, and we'll pick that up next week. Uh, What we have taking place here is, again, we've got to decide, uh, is this history in, in general, is it 518 B.C.? projecting this way is it some kind of eschatological talking about some distant future uh, that is yet to come is this something about up till 30 a.d there's several things taking place in this you've got 
Judah coming back. Obviously, they are in the land. And when we say 518, that was our last time that Zechariah was dated. But this could be any time from 518 on, you know, up to, you know, whenever Zechariah dies or he, he, it ends. And so when it ta- starts talking about the, 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 the bad shepherds, are they talking about in 518, which would be Zechariah and Joshua, the, the, the not Zechariah, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Or is it talking about sometime in the future, before 30 A.D., between now, you know, up to the, before the Maccabees, or between the Maccabees and the time of Christ? Is it talking about just general history? What is this all talking about? What we do know for sure is in this is going to be an eschatological return. I think when they're, they're talking about, talks about Judah and Joseph, or Judah and Ephraim, they're talking about the tribes being brought back from the distant lands. And as we know, they've already been brought back. While Zechariah is writing this, they're already in the land. They've already returned from Assyria. They've already been set free from Egypt, you know. Uh, They're back. They're under Persian rule, so they're in the land. So how are the people hearing Zechariah talk about this, that they're going to be another gathering? Ah, there's still people that are left to come into the land from Zechariah's day. But, I mean, again, we've got to look at it and consider when it's being written before we start looking at it today, because this was written by Zechariah, and the people that are hearing it are hearing it in this time. They know nothing of the Roman dispersion of, of 30 AD. They know nothing about the starting of the church. They're, they're looking at eschatology like we are today, not knowing what's in the future. But for them, you know, even the book of Esther is in the future. Alexander the Great is in the future. So, that's how they're hearing it. So we've got to keep that in mind and not project. What I want to do is project everything that I think I understand about the New Testament of prophecies onto this. Again, if prophecy is prophecy, it, it projects the future accurately. But what are they hearing as they look at this? Uh, some of the things, uh, just looking at the notes so I, I keep this straight, chapter, on page 1, chapter 9, verse 16, that's the end of the battle, what has taken place we saw last week, chapter 9, verse 14, Yahweh will appear over Israel, Yahweh will defend Israel, and Yahweh will save Israel. And again, I put that in the sense that could be talking about the Maccabean after Alexander dies, the Seleucids, the generals, uh, the Lord appears over Judah and rises up the Hasmonean, the Maccabees, becomes the Hasmoneans, defends Israel, saves them, and ushers them into the age that leads to the coming of Christ. That could be the case. Uh, but also, we know that's talking about the future uh, after our time, uh, at the end of the church age, and, and the Lord is going to appear again, but actually physically appear. Uh, he will defend Israel in the, what we call the 70th week of Daniel and save Israel. Even Paul says all Israel will be saved. And so that's talking about some battle and again that is the end of the battle and the people are back in the land shining like jewels or stones on a crown uh and and it's beautiful so it gives really a flavor of the end the final return in the land chapter 9 verse 17 switches from a battle scene to again the agriculture how for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty, again, we talked about that, is that talking about the Lord's goodness and beauty, or is that talking about the jewels, Israel, being back in the land? And it could go either way. It could be, really, could be talking about Israel being good and beautiful in the land. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Again, there's that prosperity, the agriculture back in the land. God is blessing them. They're beautiful. They're like jewels in a crown. And now we turn the page. And I've got a few things written down at the top of page two. Point two is kind of what I was talking about just right here, this little mess I wrote here. Uh, The time of this occurring could refer to, and then there's your four choices. Or at least you've got to, you can eliminate them if you'd like to. History, any time in Israel's history, since this is God's plan for his people, I mean, it's always going to be like this. They turn away from God, they'll be disciplined. They return, God blesses them. Uh, 518, during this time of Zerubbabel, is he talking directly to his generation? Maybe not exactly in 518, but maybe he's writing this in 505 or 490, depending on where they're at. Uh, or the time that Israel is in the land, you know, 
going up to 70 AD, or eschatological. Uh, some other things there. Oh, point six. There's the pronoun for his goodness and his beauty. Could be his, meaning Yahweh's goodness and beauty, or their, uh, meaning the, the Israelites. And it, last week, that's the end of the notes there, we gave the impression, it, it appears that it was their beauty in the land. Okay, now, chapter 10, verse 1 begins, but it continues right away with the agriculture. And I, I looked at this for a while, trying to decide, and I actually kind of was thought it was going to go that way, that this last verse of chapter 9 was really part of chapter 10. But as I, as I studied this and began to realize, I think that ends, clearly ends that chapter. And we continue with the agricultural image, but you can see verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 10 are going to be contrasting. One is going to be Yahweh, and the other is going to be the teraphim, or the idols, the household gods. And we're going to spend some time talking about this. Um, and so it, it's still got the agricultural image, but it's switching directions here. And here it is, chapter 10, verse 1, telling the people, uh, again, of what day? Well, clearly, Zechariah, he's telling the people this is what you should do. It applies to any time in history between here up until the time of Christ. Uh, it, it applies to us. But he's talking, again, he's not talking to the church. He's talking to Israelites. And there is a practice. This principle is still true in our time. But he's writing to Zechariah to address the people in 518. And it's, it's available for them all. But here it is. Ask rain from the Lord. In other words, you need rain. You need your crops. You need prosperity. You need blessing. Ask the Lord, ask Yahweh, in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation of the field. He'll give the showers, and that will give you the vegetation. It's going to come from the Lord. The key being, you need to ask Yahweh for the rain. You need rain for your crops. You need the crops to eat and prosper. Your source is... Yahweh. That, that's the whole point right here. You need to go to Yahweh. And it, it describes right here uh, the Lord who makes the storm clouds. Now, the idea there, and especially going back into chapter 9, you can see this developing, the, the, the deity that rides in the clouds. He appears in the clouds. He fights from the clouds. But also, he's going to be the one that controls the clouds. He is the divine warrior. He is the God that is above controlling all. And, of course, you can go back to the Old Testament and see Baal was also the storm god. He controlled uh, the storm. He, he was the one who rode the clouds. And when you go back to Canaanite literature, it's almost confusing because Israel's writing about Yahweh riding the clouds. You just go find the, the Ugaritic text, and you've got Baal riding the clouds. And the Lord is sending his bolts of lightning. Baal's sending his bolts of lightning. It's like... What? I mean, it's like they're almost parallel. Well, then you get to uh, Elijah, Mount Carmel. They are. He, he says, okay, let's, let's find out. Uh, and then you've got to decide, and be careful with this. Uh, you know, Baal didn't send lightning because he's not even real. Uh, and that, that's a fine uh, way of looking at it. But yet, when you start listening to the dialogue in the Bible, the problem with them is not that they're not real, that these powers are not real, it's they are, they are wrong. They, they are empowered with, if it be fallen angels, if it be demonic forces. There is a real Satan, and there is a real uh, fallen angels that are rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And so when you talk about Baal, uh, well, he wasn't even real. It's like, okay, there's a way of, uh, yes, possibly, but yet possibly he is real. There is a demonic force representing or a fallen angel representing himself as Baal as the other angelic fallen forces would be or were or have been. Uh, some have been locked up in, 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 in uh, the underworld for, in everlasting chains of darkness. Some demons have been sent to Tartarus, excuse me, and, uh, into the abyss. Uh, but that, that makes a different play with Elijah when Yahweh sent fire, was it that Baal couldn't send fire or that Baal was not allowed to send fire 
and so was left powerless. Because the day is coming, and you've got to be careful with this, because the day is going to come where the Antichrist and the false prophet will call fire out of heaven. There will be demonic manifestations that are not fake, and you can't say they're not real because they actually happen, because God is going to allow them to happen, just like God is going to allow after people have rejected truth for so long, which is very interesting in our culture, as we continue to run after false philosophies and be inundated with false truths and lies and deception, and some people want to run after that, is God has said, for those that are going to reject the truth, God says he will send the great delusion. And I would think the great delusion is going to be something more than just the lies of a political party or the propaganda from a foreign power. It's going to actually be God himself sending something that's going to, you know, if you've rejected the truth, this is your evidence that the truth isn't even real. God says, yeah, go after that. And so that's kind of, you know, what we're looking at here is there's a place where God protects and will not allow demonic manifestation or lies or deception but there's also a place where people search after them, look for them, want them. He tells them, no, no, ask the Lord. Ask Yahweh. He's, he's the one that provides. He will give it to you. But if you want to keep going after the tear of him, it's like, well, that's, that's going to cause you some problems. Because, first of all, if they're not really there, you're just in deception and there's no reality. It's vanity, like the prophets say. But if they are demonic forces, like Paul talks about, you're going to end up following the doctrines and the teachings of demons that are going to produce death and destruction. I mean, there is a power here, but it's not life. It's going to lead you away from God into deception. So best case scenario, it's just emptiness. There's nothing there. It's just stupidity. Worst case scenario, there's a power there, but it's a power leading you further and further into darkness and deception that you'll never find your way out of there because there is a power. Well, so anyway, um, chapter 10, verse 1, Ask rain from the Lord, in the English Standard Version, in the season of the spring rain, for the Lord will make the storm clouds. He's the one that's going to make it rain. And he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation of the field. Uh, and that's what, you know, I've got written down on the bottom of page 2. And that leads us to chapter 10, verse 2. And here's the switch. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviner, diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep that are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. In other words, if you... Do you want to go to Yahweh? You don't want to go here because if you go here, and you can see right there, I should have circled it, but you can figure it out. It's the second word in the Hebrew going from the right side to the left. It says, there's your word for, making the conje- con- connection. The word idols. The idol is the word idols that are translated. The English standard says the household gods, and household gods is a good translation. And the word is hot teraphim. And the word comes from the word terapim. And we're going to spend some time looking at the terapim are, are uh, images. They're little statues. We're going to talk about them. And we got a lot of insight that we can play with that. But also, for the household gods or the terapim, utter nonsense. And the diviners see lies. The diviners are going to be the ones, we could say the diviners are the prophets for the teraphim the the diviners are the spokesperson the officials of the teraphim they're going to use the teraphim to make contact with the spiritual realm so these are your preachers your teachers your philosophers that are getting their information from the teraphim and the teraphim utter nonsense the teraphim are giving information that is identified here in the in the english standard as nonsense they're giving this information to the diviners who are now explaining it and they're seeing in a vision, they're, they're understanding, they're receiving by revelation lies. They tell false dreams. So this is your option. And this is some point, if it's in 518, if it's some generation coming up until you know 30 AD, if it's throughout history, this is the problem. 
this is where we're at. I mean, this is where America is at right now, and it's becoming more. There's a little while there, as we went through the, the modern age, you know, we left the, the pre-modern age and the modern age, where we're following science, we, we say. We're following science. And, of course, science is established in reality. Science is established by God. So there is, a, there is natural truth in science. Uh, God created science. And that's the early scientists, they, the true scientists, you know, that came out of the, the Middle Ages. Uh, they were Christians that realized Yahweh created the world, that these two things should be compatible. And, and when you have Yahweh and science working together, that's great. But in the modern age, especially when we were younger, 60s and 70s, they began to try and drive a wedge between religion and science, and you had to be what they call secular you had to be say you couldn't go to science with any concept of God, which is fine because science is going to stand on its own. You don't have to be a believer because science is real, but science originates from Yahweh, the Creator. So you can study science without being a Christian. You can come up with insight, but that this secular we've been moving this way throughout the last several decades. We've been moving this way with the postmodern age, and now this science is now starting to pursue or culture is starting to pursue a false philosophy. You can call it postmodernism, and we've talked about it before. There's no absolutes. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The reason the great scientists in the 16, 17, 1800s began to break out because they knew Yahweh was absolute, that his creation was absolute, that there are principles making it function, that you can study the absolute principles and figure out what's wrong. We can figure out medicine because this is why this doesn't work. We fix this, we fix that. It, it all equals out. There's math, there's equations. But as you go into postmodernism, you're rejecting Yahweh, the absolute, and embracing the concept over here of no absolute. And you're going to now start basing your science not on the Christian culture, but on a postmodern culture. And it's going to unravel, it is unraveling fast. It's getting scary because science now is not even absolute. Science now is almost like a, it's part of a philosophy. What do you want science to mean? And now you're into listening to diviners who are explaining science that are based on no absolutes, but they're going to be heading more and more. This is going to become more and more obvious. We're heading into this demonic realm and this is going to start giving information to the diviners, which is going to bring science over here. And science is going to be scary stuff. It's going to be ridiculous. We're not talking about 2023 here. We're writing 518, so let's not go too fast and make too much application and get this out of, out of context. Uh, the teraphim. First of all, I want to go to page 4, and we'll come back to those verses. The teraphim, or teraphim, you can see, we're going to look at the verses. Rachel took them from Laban. When, they, when Jacob fled from Laban, she takes the family terrapim with her. Uh, there's something important about them. Uh, they are in Saul's house. Uh, Michael, who married David, or Michal, however you want to pronounce it, who married David, Saul's daughter, uh, when David fled, she put a terrapim, Terapim in the bed gave it goat hair and made it look like David was in bed sick. And when they pulled the covers back, it was one of the, the terapim, one of the household gods. Uh, and we can see other things about this. So what we know so far about the uh, point B on page four, the terapim, the terapim uh, are, are utter nonsense, uh, are images that represent deceased ancestors and were used to venerate them. So they would have, like if someone died, they would make an image of that person, which was part of the idea that you were responsible for taking care of, and uh, not just forgetting that person, but remembering them. And it can be an innocent thing. We have tombstones. We go to the cemetery. We visit the tombstone. Now, we, it's not a terrapim. We don't use it for divination. We don't pour offerings on it. Uh, we just remember the person. There may be, you know, the date of their birth. You know, the whole story. There, you know, we have a little poem written on it. Whatever. It's similar to that, but it was something they took care into their home. 
it would be something to remember them by. Uh, there was something that was in the ancient culture that they'd have to take care of the dead. They would, they would leave, but if you didn't like, uh, lots, a lot of times they would bury them under the floor of their house, which is spooky for me. Put them in a cemetery over there. But they would bury them. That way they could always take care of them because you didn't want them mad. You didn't want them out there in a cemetery somewhere because they'd come trouncing back and haunt you because, hey, give me some attention. And so if you buried them close, you could, you know, provide for them, you know, pour a drink offering out to them, you know, whatever their, their minds and their culture was telling them. And that's why you find burials in houses. Well, the terrapim could fit the same idea. Here's an image that would represent, and different people would have different, you know, ways of doing it. But also the terrapim, uh, point one, the terrapim may have served as deeds or claims to property. So whoever had the possession of dad's terrapim or dad's image had rights to dad's property. It, the, the, the image not only was to remember dad, but it also was that whoever has this has the property. Uh, thus, the stealing of Laban's terrapim was more than just, you know, taking some little gods, some little idols. It was taking a claim because you remember Rachel saying something like, you know, what have we gotten out of this deal? These things belong to us. We're taking them with us. Which is like, what, you want these stone images? It's like, well, no, this is the title deeds. That's our stuff. Or, you know, uh, property, possessions, blessings, favor, or access to the spiritual realm. Now, if your forefathers are in the spiritual realm and they're still active, maybe we could get them to work on our behalf a little bit. I mean, pull some strings. So not only do we want to make sure we don't forget them and they haunt us, maybe we can talk to them, they can give us information, and now you're into necromancy, where you're communicating with the dead. Now again, I do not believe that you can communicate with the dead. Uh, I do believe demonic forces can imitate. But then you've got the story of Saul who is actually going to go do that very thing and talk to Samuel. And it appears it's really Samuel. I mean, you can say, well, it was a demon imitating Samuel. Uh, The witch was scared. Samuel was upset. And the information was accurate. So again, that's another conversation, or not another, but keep that in mind. Point two, the terrapim were used to remember the deceased ancestors and were images that helped provide a point of focus to continue to care for them. That's, I already said that. Point three, the terrapim were used to contact the deceased or access the spiritual realm to seek influence from the deceased, which leads to point four, the terrapim may have indicated the deceased ascendancy to some level of divine status. They wouldn't become the God, but they could become more than human because now they're into the spiritual realm and now you can go there and you can have help, get blessings, and you want to make sure you're making communication. And who's going to make contact with the dead ancestors through the terrapim? It's going to be the diviners who are skilled in their ministry, skilled in their officiating, skilled in their manipulation of this, and they can access visions, dreams, uh, words, prophecies from the teraphim, the diviners can receive this and begin to speak it and share it with others. And so when you need rain, you go to the diviners who go to the teraphim, who go to the underworld to ask the ancestors, can you give us some rain? Can you talk to Baal while you're there? Close? Sounds a lot like some Catholicism things, which makes sense, you know, when you say, uh, we, God is busy, but if you've got a saint up there that you can ask, you know, they're right there. I mean, we're like, hey, God, hey, hey, listen to us. If you could have a personal relationship with a particular saint, they could, like, just walk across the hallway and say, hey, we got a message from so-and-so. Can you kind of, you know, it just, I mean, it makes sense if you're working in some kind of a hierarchy. Now, if you're working with the Bible, uh, you have access through Jesus Christ. Uh, that's your priesthood. It doesn't make sense. But, again, with this line of thinking and human thinking, you can, you can see how that would all develop. So that is what a terrapim is. Go back to right here very quickly. See if any of those things I said now make sense because we've got some references to terrapim in the scriptures. Here's the one with Laban and Rachel. Genesis 31, 19, 34, and 35. There's more verses there. I've got just parts of it. 
Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Underlying word is terapim. She stole the terapim. Now Rachel had taken the terapim and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. So Laban comes to see. He knows they're gone. Someone took them. He's looking through all of Jacob's stuff. He searched but did not find the terapim because Rachel was sitting on them. She's got the terapim. So some reason, she's got them. He wants them back. And it's got to be more than just, those things are valuable. I made them out of gold. It could be just, ah, they're gold and we want them back. They're worth money. Or it could mean the terapim are the ancestors. They're everything we've built up as a family. Uh, We've got connections with property. We've got connections with legal rights. We've got connections with the ancestors. Someone's got to be taken care of. But there's a lot going on right here. That's it. That's all I've got right there on Genesis. Judges, which is a crazy time period. It's a crazy, ridiculous... You cannot read Judges and find spiritual insight and look for a hero. I mean, you can find bits and pieces... But it's, it's an ugly, ugly book. It's, it's what a culture looks like right before it just evaporates. So we've got a man named Micah. And again, I'd like to go back and read the whole thing to you. Uh, the, the man Micah had a shrine. Now this is the people of God. This is the people that have come into the promised land. This is the generation or the generation after, or a couple generations after, Joshua. They've taken the promised land and they've set up the tabernacle, and things start going bad. They start forgetting about God and start filling in the blank, becoming more Canaanite than they are Yahweh followers, but they yet still maintain the name of Yahweh. So Micah had a shrine. Now, they've got the tabernacle, but Micah makes his own shrine. And he made an ephod, that's with the garment, that the, the breastplate that the priest wore, and teraphim or terapim, right there. Uh, so he's got an ephod for the priest to wear, and he's got the terapim that he can now access the ancestors, are they his ancestors, I would assume, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. So now he's, his son is the priest for the shrine, a little personal tabernacle with the family gods there. And they're going to use the son is going to access information through the teraphim. So they've got, the son is now a diviner working with the teraphim in the book of Judges, which shouldn't surprise you if you read you know what Judges is. Like, it's, we're just beginning the corruption. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, the next chapter talks about a young Levite. Now, this young Levite is very, very interesting. I, with, just without giving you any support for it at all, I think this young Levite is the grandson of Moses. Okay? I think that that's what he is. Because it says they're going to be, the people of, at this same time, Mike has got his little shrine set up. He's got the ephod. This young Levite is going to come by and, and he needs a place to work. He's a Levite, but he needs a job. Well, aren't you, shouldn't you be working in the tabernacle? No one's taking care of the tabernacle. It seems like it's a forgotten. He says, well, hey, I've got a tabernacle right here. I will pay you this much money. I'll give you a set of clothes, and you can, you can work for me. He says, Where, what are, I mean, I can't believe you're just wandering around. It's like Moses' grandson is just looking for a job. It's like hard times are hard. It's like, well, I'll hire you. Now, it's not, his name is not, it doesn't make that connection in the Scriptures directly, but it's pretty clear. Okay. So he's now, this young Levite is working in Micah's personal shrine. And at that time, the tribe of Dan decides the Philistines are too hard. We can't defeat the Philistines. Let's go find some easier people to beat up on. So they wander all the way up. They go up and they find Lachish, where the tribe of Dan is located. The territory becomes located in the Old Testament. They find a people that's living up there in a very nice place, a lot of water. Uh, when we've been there, water's coming out of Mount Hermon, forming the Jordan River that re- leads into the Sea of Galilee, which then fills up and runs what we know as the Jordan River. Lots of water, their beautiful land. And they go up there, and there's an unsuspecting people. They go, these are them. We can crush these guys. So they go back and say, tell the people, let's come up here and kick some butt up here in, in northern Israel. Not where God wants us, but it's sure a lot easier than where God wants us. So they're going by Micah's house, 
And it says, and I could, should read it to you instead of telling it to you. They go by and they hear a voice they recognize singing in Micah's shrine. Now, if it's 2023 and you just got done listening to a concert or the radio and you recognize, well, that's, that's so-and-so because you've got these recordings. But these guys are going from, they're, they're military people going back and forth and they walk by, they hear, go, oh, I know that voice. That's, and they go, what are you doing here? They go, well, I got a job. I, I work for Micah. They go, that's a lot of terrapim or terrapim. You know what? Well, here, let me read it to you. Judges chapter 18, verses 14 through 20. Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, terapim, a carved image, and, and, and a metal image? Now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah. Now, they'd already gone by before, and they'd heard him singing, and they recognized his voice. They knew who he was. At the home of Micah, and asked him about his welfare. Now, the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, the teraphim, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance. The priest, the young Levite, stood by the entrance and watched all of Micah's stuff be carried off. Uh, okay, weapons of war, okay. Stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. Listen, you, you're losing everything, but you are a well-known Levite. We would be honored to have you come with us. So don't say anything, cover your mouth and just come along with us. We're taking all this stuff. You can be our father, our leader. You can be our priest. You can speak for the teraphim to us. It, it, is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be a priest to the tribe and clan of Israel? You'll be the priest of the tribe of Dan. And the priest's heart was glad. The young Levite was, what a great idea. This is a, be- this is a better offer. He took the ephod and the teraphim and the carved images and went along with the people and he moved up north and that's where the tribe of Dan settled and took all these images with him. So that's the teraphim right there. And that would probably, that's a good idea, just kind of look that up yourself, do some study, who that young Levite was. First Samuel, there you've got Micah, or Michael and uh, David with the household God there. And then Ezekiel 21, verses 21 through 22. For the king of Babylon, Ezekiel writes, now we've gone from Genesis, we've gone through Judges, we're into 1 Samuel, which is like 1000 B.C., so there's at least a thousand year period there. And now we're into Ezekiel, which is going to be, you know, 580 B.C. Right around that time. For the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, stands at the parting of the way. He's trying to decide which way he's supposed to go for battle. At the head of the two ways, to use divination. He's going to use divination. He shakes the arrows. In other words, he takes a couple arrows, shakes the arrows and throws them down, and then the diviners come up and read how the arrows fell. Yeah, and it's like they get spiritual insights from how the arrows fell. He shakes the arrows. He consults the teraphim. Nebuchadnezzar is consulting, and that's how it's translated. All the other places translated household gods. Here it's translated just like it is, teraphim. So Nebuchadnezzar is consulting the teraphim. So there's some ancestors, some ancient kings or something, the images of, and the diviners are going to speak to him. He looks at the liver. They would actually open up an animal, take the liver out, and read a liver. And I saw in the Babel, uh, the Babylon, the British Museum, I saw models of livers made out of clay. And they're like teaching tools. On, if the liver looks like this is what this means, and there's writing on explaining how to read the liver for insight. We're talking 
good science. Now, we're talking good guidance on we're going to grab an animal, make sure it's the right one, cut it open, take out the liver, bring it to the diviners and say, what should we do? Let me read the liver. And now Nebuchadnezzar is conquering the world, reading fallen arrows and livers, and asking what the, the images, the teraphim, want him to do. And he's conquering. Now, who's leading him? The Lord is leading him to destroy Jerusalem, but he's not, he's not asking the Lord. The first time he, in, he encounters the Lord is when he has the, the dream, and, and he, he doesn't know what it means, and no one can explain it to him. And Daniel has to say, well... And let me tell you about the Lord, who's actually controlling this whole thing. Uh, but he's looking at the terrapim. He looks at the liver. Into his right hand comes the divination for Jerusalem. So here's the answer. Here's the answer, king. And the answer comes up. You should turn right and go attack Jerusalem. Now, he thought it was the arrows, the liver, the terrapim. But it was the Lord telling him, I want you to go to Jerusalem. And that's what Ezekiel's writing. To set the batting ram to open the mouth with murder, uh, to lift up the voice with shouting, to set batting rams against the gates, to cast up the mounds, to build the siege towers. And the Lord is leading him there to do his work. Okay. Uh, diviners, point two, diviners. comes from the word cosm, Q-A-S-A-M, when it's transliterated. It means to practice divination. Uh, and there's the word that's actually in the text. It's associated with... These are some verses that it's associated with. In Deuteronomy, when, when you are a diviner, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 14, it's right alongside practicing witchcraft is a diviner. So a diviner looking at the teraphim or asking a, information from a teraphim is right beside witchcraft. Uh, or making sons or daughters pass through the fire, which means the translation, burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Deuteronomy 18, verse 10, same verse has diviners in it. And Saul says to the witch, or the medium of Endor, now just watch this. He says to her, she doesn't know who he is, you know, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off mediums and the necromancers from the land. And the necromancers were the ones who would contact the dead for information, which may be exactly what the teraphim eventually were doing, was you were using the, the image of a deceased person to contact that deceased person and get information. And Saul himself, it says, no witchcraft, no mediums, none of this stuff is to take place. Nonetheless, we go back to our text right here. And... Chapter 10, verse 1, ask rain from the Lord. He's the one that is going to give it. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 2, for the household that tear of him, utter nonsense. It's like reading a liver. There's nothing there. It's like postmodernism. It's nonsense. And the diviners, the religious leaders that are reading the teraphim, or the religious, the philosophers, the leaders that are following postmodernism, see lies they tell false dreams what they're teaching preaching proclaiming it's a dream it's not even real and give empty consolation it's going to be okay we're going to do these things to improve the environment it's empty console it's not going to work or whatever it is therefore the people wander like sheep they are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Because you're over here looking at this stuff, your leaders, the shepherds are the leaders. I'll show you some examples. The shepherds are the leaders of the people. The leaders of the people have gone to Terapim to get information, but their lies, their dreams, the philosophers who are instructing the leaders, it's worthless. And so the people who are following their leaders it's as if you don't even have a shepherd. It's like sheep just wandering around, not knowing where they're going. Oh, I'm the shepherd. I'm the leader. No, you're a leader listening to the diviner who's telling lies and telling dreams that aren't true from a teraphim who is worthless. And so if you're following the teraphim of a diviner by a leader and you're the people, you're lost. You are wandering around. You're like sheep without a shepherd. Well, we got a leader. 
your leader is lost because the diviners are lost because the teraphim are worthless and you can tie that right into our culture but you can tie that into a variety of different cultures and make the same thing that's that's where at turn the page and oh uh, bottom of page page bottom page four uh just shepherds uh this this clearly means leaders uh kings were the shepherds or leaders of the people kings in the ancient world refer to themselves as shepherds there's uh lugel uh, lugel zagesi uh, 2358 to 2334 BC, a Sumerian king called himself a shepherd. Another one from two, 2300 BC in Mesopotamia, Asher Asher Nashapal, the Assyrian king from 883 to 859, actually wrote that he was shepherd of the four quarters, who has brought all peoples under one authority. Notice that in 883 859, Asher Nasharpal believed that he was the shepherd who had gathered the people from all four quarters and brought them under one authority he had rebuilt he thought the tower of babel he had united the world it was the new world order in 883 tower of babel in genesis asher nasherpal in 880 all the way through alexander the great going to unite the world in one empire today if you want to know what's happening to america what is why is this nothing making sense the borders open we've got we're, we're sending all of our military to ukraine we're 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 being invaded by balloons it's like what is happening ah tower of babel the spirit of asher nashapal uh alexander the great it's there it's they want a one world global government it, it's it's from the book of genesis it's it's always been this way and god says no it, it, and even when jesus returns it, psalms chapter 2 is i've already established my king he is the one who's going to rule the world and even when he rules it there's still going to be individual nations that are, have their own leadership then that's another whole story ashurbanipal of assyria and nebuchadnezzar all consider themselves shepherds okay chapter 10 verse 3 because Yahweh asked him, he'll send the rain, but you've gone to the teraphim, the diviners are lying to you, and the shepherds are following the diviners, and my sheep are without leadership. Uh, they've got leaders, but they're stupid, so they're not even real. Chapter 10, verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds. God is angry with the leadership, and you can see why. And I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. Now, forget about 2023, forget about any application. The context here is somewhere in Israel's history. If it's 518, if it's, you know, 490, if it's sometime leading up to the time of Christ, uh, if it's the final days, if, if this can be, this could be a, uh, these false shepherds could be the ones who signed the peace treaty with the Antichrist and enter into the covenant of death that Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about. Uh, it could be that. But nonetheless, God says, I am angry with the shepherds. Hot, I will punish the leaders for the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, cares for his flock. Who's his flock? Here it is, the house of Judah. Judah has got poorly, in this, wherever this is taking place, Judah's got leaders that are following diviners who are following the teraphim, which are basically into false philosophy, uh, into demonism, witchcraft, and they're trying to figure things out. And God says, no more. I care too much about Judah to let this happen. I'm going to punish the leaders. Uh, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Now, here we go right back to where we were in chapter 9. God intervening with Judah and making them the warriors that can't be defeated. Making them the ones that are devouring the sling stones. Because of this, Judah is going to rise up. Again, is this the Maccabean revolt? Is this the end times? When is this going to take place? And will make them like his majestic, uh, his majestic steed in battle. Now, all of a sudden, they're on the horse. They're the steed that is going. They were the battle bow before. They've been the arrow. Now they're the steed in battle. 
from him shall come the cornerstone again from him i i think this is talking about judah not from not from the lord i mean you say from the lord shall come the cornerstone but you see the lord is the one talking for the lord of hosts it says my anger is hot against the shepherds for the lord of hosts cares for his flock and then he's talking about judah so i think it says from him you got to think is it from the lord is going to come the cornerstone or is it from judah going to come the cornerstone i think Judah is going to be raised up, empowered by the Lord at this time because of the deception that's in the nation. We need to save him somehow. Judah's going to rise up. And from him, from Judah shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. We're going to give a whole new leadership, the, the, the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow. Every ruler is going to come from Judah who God is going to raise up. Now, when it says this right here, the cornerstone is on page 6. The cornerstone is a cut stone that is used to do these things. In the ancient world, the cornerstone would be set down first to ensure spiritual stability of the temple or palace. It would have some kind of spiritual blessing. It's going to be have an inscription on it dedicated to this God or whatever. This is why this temple, this palace is being built. But also establish the structure's integrity, the physical building. It would be a solid, not just a spiritual representative with an inscription. It would actually be a solid stone supporting the structure of the building. But it would also secure the correct location. It's the first stone that is set. So if it's crooked, uh, the whole structure is going to be crooked. You ever gone by those houses? You know, I remember when we built houses with a high school class, we'd always measure from where the, the where the curb it was never there yet, but where the curb we'd set up a, the equipment and then measure back and we'd have to set the 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 stakes up and you know run the string line so in our house would be parallel with the street i mean that's just what you do which is fine but i've seen some houses where you know intentionally it's like they say let's let's mess this up a little bit their house is sitting slightly tilted now that wasn't a mistake i'm not making fun of the builder it they just like you know a little bit of an angle maybe it whatever reason and so the idea here is that that first stone Wherever you set that first stone, you're going to run the direction here off that stone. You're going to run, and it's, it's a cut stone, so it's square. And so you're going to, wherever you set it is how the building's going to be aligned. And then anchor, the structure, of the, it would be the foundation that would anchor it so it wouldn't rise or fall. So when it says cornerstone, from, from Judah's going to come the cornerstone that's going to be the spiritual stability, the structural integrity. It's going to establish things in the right place, and everything's going to be built from that position, and it's going to be the anchor tent peg is, is similar it's a big tent peg that's put in the ground and the ropes are tied to it that hold the tent up so whatever is going to be built is going to be built through judah that god is raising up and establishing that could be a direct reference to jesus christ you could say you, know, you read in there that jesus is the cornerstone jesus is the tent peg it's all going to come from uh, judah but it appears he's talking more about the tribe of judah and it says from him every ruler all of them together. Now, this is being written after the line of David has ended with Zer- uh, uh, the last king. The, help me out. Went to uh, Jehoiakim. Jehoi- you know, Zedekiah was the last king, but then Jehoiachin. Jehoiakim died, and his son Jehoiachin went into captivity. Uh, that that was the end of the davidic line because zerubbabel comes back from the davidic line but he's the governor so this can't be talking about all the kings are going to come from david or come from judah because they've already come and gone that's been stopped the next king from judah is going to be jesus so it appears we're talking here i'm going to say about in the future sometime when jesus returns to deliver israel they're going right it's right we talked about this in chapter 9 judah's going to be raised up and we're going to establish the kingdom from judah okay chapter 10 chapter 10 verse 5 they shall be like mighty men in battle here we're right back in the battle judah the jews are fighting a battle trampling the foe in the mud of the streets they shall fight because the lord is with them and they shall put to shame the riders on horses again that can refer to any time uh it was the persians were the ones who began to mount horses and form a cavalry so that they could uh, outmaneuver foot soldiers. It was really an innovation of the Persians. Alexander, of course, picked up on it and met them with his own uh, mighty set of horse, or horsemen. Chapter 10, verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I mean, we're still talking about strengthening the house of Judah. For 
possibly an eschatological battle. And I will save the house of Joseph. Now this again, now this is northern Israel. So now we've got them coming back again, the tribes coming back, being regathered. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. That's the, the compassion of the Mosaic Covenant. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. Again, remember, they're in the land. This, this can't make sense, the 518, because we've already been regathered. We're, we're back. And so it's it projecting into the future. I, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm, you know, it's not like there's, there's a, you know, it's a mystery, and then there's an answer book somewhere at the back of the Bible. And I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Because remember, it all began. Ask the Lord. And when you come to that place where you ask me, I'm going to answer. Uh, chapter 10, verse 7. Then Ephraim, now this is again, we said Joseph earlier. Ephraim is also a northern tribe. So this is talking about northern Israel, the northern tribes. It's one of the major tribes. Then Ephraim shall become a mighty warrior. And their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Ephraim's conquering now. So all of Israel now is conquering, winning battles. Their children shall see it and be glad. That's talking about the next generation is going to see this victory and rejoice. Again, if this is eschatological, we're talking about going into the kingdom age. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Look at what the Lord has done. Chapter 10, verse 8. I will whistle for them and gather them. That is actually the word whistle. It is what a shepherd would do. Is he would whistle. It would be his sign for his sheep. I've heard it said, I, I, I heard it preached, that they put their sheep in a pen at night then take them out to graze during the day. So many shepherds would put their sheep in the pen. There'd be different flocks. But each shepherd had a whistle, had a sound, had a hiss that the sheep would recognize. And so now when they opened up the gate, not everybody's sheep would go out. You'd whistle your signal and your sheep would come out. Thus Jesus, you've got it written down right there. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, uh, as he is saying, he's the good shepherd. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they will follow. So when Jesus calls, his, his flock will listen. But anyway, this is saying, I will whistle for them and gather them in. This is the Lord whistling and calling them from the nations back to this end time eschatological event. For I have redeemed them and they shall be as many as they were before. Again, that's the eschatological blessing. So that's, what we're, that's what's in this chapter. I mean, there's really, I don't want to say nothing new here. We go back and examine it closer. But this is the ideal of God bringing his people back. And that's what I'm more interested in. What is Zechariah talking about? What time period? And now right here, chapter 10, verse 9, in the English standard, it says, though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. They're going to remember, apparently, remember and ask, and he's going to respond. And with their children, they shall live and return. Now do notice this, the English standard has, though I scattered them among the nations. Uh, The actual Masoretic text, you've got two texts. You've got the Masoretic text, which is, probably the best text that was handed down by the Jews. That's where they would count the letters after every manuscript. The, 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 I can't tell you off the top of my head, but the, the oldest one we've got is like 900 A.D. But when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it matched the Dead Sea Scrolls that were written up to 200 B.C. So we jumped like a thousand years, and the Masoretic text matches the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the Masoretic text is what all the modern translations are based on. But there is the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation that was apparently taken probably from the Masoretic text around 200 B.C. and put into Greek. And that's what you can even see it quoted in the New Testament. Paul used it. Jesus referred to it. And many of the Greek-speaking Jews, especially the Greek-speaking Jews outside of Jerusalem, use the Septuagint. It's very useful. But it's a translation of the Hebrew. And so sometimes it's not... If you've got to go with the Masoretic text or the Septuagint the Greek translation of potentially the Masoretic text, you want to go with the Masoretic text. In this case right here, um, the, the, the Hebrew, you see, I've got it in a box there, chapter 10, verse 9. Notice the Hebrew word there is translated, and I will sow them, which is a big deal. Because in this, yes, God's in judgment, he scattered them. But here, the Masoretic text is going to say, the word is sow. I sowed them. 
the idea there being in God's, in God's judgment, he's scattering them, but you take one step up this whole process, he's not just scattering to destroy them. It looks like a scattering, but you go up above another level of divine, uh, uh, the divine view, uh, I'm sowing them. Just like he sent them into Babylonian captivity, and then Jeremiah had the vision of the, the bad figs and the good figs, it's like, oh, the, the, the good figs are still in Jerusalem. All the bad figs went to Babylon. Jeremiah says, no, no. The rotten figs are still here. God took the good figs and put them in captivity to preserve them because they're the seed that is going to be brought back to rebuild. The people that came back were the ones that were taken into captivity, the families. And the people of Jerusalem said, wow, we must be the right people because we didn't get taken. Jeremiah says, you're the ones he's leaving for destruction. The ones he wanted to save, he took into captivity. And that explains his word. When he sent them and scattered them, he's sowing them, the divine viewpoint, he's sowing them with the intention of coming back and getting the harvest from them. So again, again, it's not a big deal, except the English Standard Version says, though I scattered them, and the word should be right there, sow. And it depends on what your different translation is. I'm not a Bible translator. I'm just comparing right here the Hebrew with the English standard, and so is the divine perspective of the overall arching view of, of salvation. He's sowing them. Now, if you're talking about 586, he's scattering them. He's judging them. But when you get a little bit higher, yeah, he's scattering them because he's sowing them like seed. Okay, uh, chapter 10, verse 10. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. Now, this caused some trouble for people because it's like, what, Assyria is long gone. Well, Egypt, the people were scattered. Uh, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's time, they were scattered. They went down to Egypt. They went to Babylon, but then they fled to Egypt. The Assyrian captivity, that was where the northern ten tribes were scattered. So again, that could be Egypt and Assyria. It could be Judah and Israel being returned, restored. And I'll bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there's no room for them. The land of Gilead is east of the Sea of Galilee. The land of Lebanon is north of Galilee, and it's outside the boundaries of Israel, uh, although when you look at the big promised land, it would include that. And so the idea here is till there's no room for them. God's going to be bringing people back into Israel until they can't get any more room in Israel. They're on the east side of Galilee. They're living in Lebanon, and they're Jews, getting as close to the land as they can get because there's so many of them. So you talk about 1948, have the Jews re- re- returned? Yes, I mean, they're back on, on the scene of history, but they haven't returned like this, where there's just no place for them. Uh, so, I mean, keep that in mind. Wh- 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 what is this talking about? Then chapter 10, verse 11, a big pronoun. We've got to look at this pronoun, and I've got to wrap this up. The pronoun, he shall pass through the sea of trouble. Exactly the same thing. The Masoretic text has the pronoun. It's a singular. It means he. He shall pass, and he, is it Ephraim, or is he Yahweh? Uh, the, the Septuagint is going to have the plural, which leads to the, the, the group, the, the Ephraim. They will pass. And so the idea is, they shall pass. You can see right there, the NIV says, it's point A, they will pass. The King James, and he shall pass. The New American Standard, they will pass. The Hebrew translation that you're looking at right here says, and he shall pass, but the English standard also says he shall pass. So you've either got he, Yahweh, passing through the sea of affliction, which there's no way Yahweh's going to pass through the sea of affliction, but you've got Ephraim, they are passing through the sea of affliction. Ah, so it must be Ephraim. But then you read on, he shall pass through the sea of of troubles or the sea of affliction and without adding another pronoun and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. Now is Ephraim doing that? Is Ephraim passing through the sea of affliction and striking down the waves of the sea? Well, now all of a sudden you're talking about Yahweh. So I I think right here to make a point, to make a statement, to, you you know, pick a side, that should be Yahweh will pass through the sea of affliction and that can be referring to Jesus or that can be referring to the Lord passing through the sea of affliction ahead of them. And this sea of affliction could be a reference to the tribulation. He shall pass through the sea of affliction. Sea refers to the nations 
and strike down the waves of the sea. During the tribulation, the nations rise up. He's going to pass through it, strike them down. The depths of the Nile will be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low. The scepter of Egypt shall depart. He'll crush the nations, just like we see in Isaiah. Again, that's, those, there's the words. I'm trying to give some meaning to it. The Masoretic text and Septuagint are on opposite sides of those pronouns. And I would go with the Masoretic text in this case. In chapter 10, verse 12, I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. And again, because it's, it's one of the problems is all the way through there, it's saying, I scattered them, I will bring them back, I will bring them to the land. And then all of a sudden it says, he shall pass. It seems like it should be, I shall pass. But one of the things that I got out of the commentaries is that sudden switch of pronouns is typical of Old Testament prophecies where Yahweh is saying something, then all of a sudden it just switches and the prophet starts talking about Yahweh. And that's one of the signs of, instead of being typical literature, it's a sign of prophecy. The prophet's recording Yahweh talking, 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 talking. Now Yahweh's done talking. Now the prophet's talking about Yahweh just, just like that quick. It's like, whoa, that's not good literature. Yeah, that's the way it happened though. Yahweh was talking to me is what he said and now I'm describing what is happening. And so that would be a way of interpreting that. That's not necessarily the right way. You've got to either go, someone's passing through the sea of affliction. It could be the tribulation. Israel passing through the sea of affliction and then Yahweh striking down the waves or Yahweh himself, like I think it's saying right there, passing through it and he will make them strong. Now that is, I think, I'm going to say that is talking about uh, Israel returning in the end times and tying into uh, the Lord setting up his kingdom uh, him using Judah again and the Israelites again in battle. You've seen two times, chapter 9 and chapter 10, of Israel being brought back and restored and then empowered for battle. And you're going to see that again later on in Zechariah. So that's what we see right there in those verses. Uh, there they are. I'll pray and we're done. Father, we do thank you for the chance to look into these things. We ask that we again would handle them diligently, that we'd allow the word to grow in our heart, that we would gain understanding and insight, that we may interpret these things correctly. But Father, we also pray for mercy at this time in our nation's history, that we again would be able to see the truth, understand the truth, and live the truth, even in times where it is difficult or rejected, that we would be again, not just politically right, but Father, that we would be living righteously in your kingdom at this time in history, uh, proclaiming your truth and and presenting your light to this generation in jesus name we pray amen thank you for your time